Welcome to this special edition of the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Beyond the minute-by-minute reporting of the ground war, the Twitter feeds, TikTok images, there's a broader and more economically complex issue surrounding the war in the Ukraine and the world's response to it. Issues that include sanctions, the SWIFT system, the seizure of assets, including yachts and private planes parked around the globe all part of the interconnectedness of a global economic structure that Russia, for better or worse, has been a part of. Few understand the intricacies of these connections better than my guest, Bill Browder. Years ago, Browder made millions at Putin's Russia. What he didn't know was what kind of price he would pay for getting involved in the ever-entangling web of Putin and his oligarchs. The ultimate result was the brutal death of Browder's lawyer and friend, Sergei Magnitsky, who was murdered in prison after uncovering a multi-million dollar fraud committed by Russian government officials. Browder has carried on Magnitsky's legacy at great personal risk to himself. That legacy and the Magnitsky Act are a large part of the basis of the sanctions that we've been talking about this weekend. Long before current events, Browder's been leading a campaign to expose Russia's endemic corruption and human rights abuses. He's the author of the international bestseller Red Notice and the soon-to-be-published Freezing Order. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Browder back to the Who, What, Why podcast. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about the financial side of this because certainly there's a lot of coverage of, of the war itself. Talk a little bit about what you see happening in Russia today with respect to the impact of these sanctions, the impact on the Russian central bank, how it's affecting both the oligarchs on the one hand and average people in Russia on the other. Well, so first of all, the, 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 the premise of the whole sanctions is that we can't go to war physically against Russia and Ukraine. We're, we all, of course, sympathize with Ukraine. We're allies with Ukraine, but we're not going to go and start shooting bullets for Ukraine. And so the one, the kind of bullets we can shoot are economic bullets. There's, there's a very great quote from the famous chess champion Gary Kasparov that we, we should fight them in the banks instead of with tanks. And, and that's what we've done here. And, um, and the sanctions are absolutely devastating across the board for all sorts of different types of people. So who's affected? Well, we start out with regular Russians. And when they went to their cash machines this morning, uh, they discovered that there was no cash in the ATMs. The uh, ruble is devalued by 30%. The Russian stock market, so, some of the stocks are down 70, 80%. It's a, um, an absolute financial bloodbath. And um, prices of goods, of any kind of imported goods, will go up 100%. The, um, that's the regular person. But it's not just the regular people affected, it's also the oligarchs. They can no longer uh, land their planes, their private jets in Europe. Um, uh, air, the airspace is closed for all Russians. The um, assets for a number of oligarchs are now being frozen across the globe. And um, the interesting thing is that Vladimir Putin didn't ever anticipate this. He thought that we would all be fighting with each other, the Germans fighting with the Brits, fighting with the Americans about doing nothing, because that's what that's the experience he had every other time he committed su such an atrocity. When he invaded Georgia, there was nothing. When he uh, uh, took Crimea, there was nothing. And so he figured the same thing was going to happen. And so Putin is sitting there scratching his head and saying, 
I, I couldn't, I can't believe it. I can't believe that this is happening. You know Putin. You've been studying him for a long time. How did he miscalculate so badly? Well, I don't think he miscalculated. He, 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 so, you know, the, the, in the financial world, they, they say, you know, past performance is not a predictor of future <laughs> performance. But, but he was just looking at past performance. I mean, you know, it wasn't just Georgia and Crimea. The Russians have sent, you know, special agents to Britain, where I live, to kill Alexander Litvinenko with radioactive material. Nothing happened. They sent uh, special agents to kill uh, Sergei Skripal in Salisbury with Novichok, a, a banned chemical agent. Nothing happened. They shot down a passenger plane with 200, 298 civilians over eastern Ukraine. It was flying from Amsterdam to uh, Malaysia. Nothing happened. Putin is so used to nothing happening that he thought he could do this and nothing would happen. And, and you know, I, I thought he was probably going to be right about this. I thought I thought that 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 that's that was going to be the uh, uh, the outcome. And and to be honest, I mean, I, I've been I've been lobbying for sanctions against Russian officials for a decade. And I've I've seen I've looked into the eyes of these European officials and they wanted nothing to do with me. I mean, it was only through unbelievable outside pressure, parliamentary pressure, media pressure and, and external events that that I was able to get sanctions laws in place in these countries. But boy, did they not want to do them. And so the, the fact that over the last 48 hours, the world has joined arms completely cohesively and started uh, rolling out these sanctions programs in true devastating fashion is really something remarkable and unbelievable. And in many ways, the Magnitsky Act here in the U.S. set the stage for these sanctions. Indeed, it did. So after, after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered by the Putin regime in prison, I tried to get justice in Russia and couldn't. And I said, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And I said, well, these people have all this money outside of Russia. Let's freeze it and not let them travel. And that was the concept of the Magnitsky Act. And, and I took it to Washington shortly after Sergei was murdered in 2010. And I was able to convince Democrats and Republicans equally that this was a good idea. You know, should we allow Russian torturers and murderers to come to America and use the banking system? And, and there was no, at the time, there was no Russian torture and murder lobby in Washington. And they said, yes. And that was the Magnitsky Act. And Putin went out of his mind when the Magnitsky Act was passed because he understood right. exactly where this was going to lead. You know, he probably has been thinking about his long-term plans for a long time, and he knew where this was going to lead. And in retaliation for the Magnitsky Act passing, He's, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families, effectively sensing orphans to death. A lot of these were sick children. And then he made it the single largest foreign policy priority to try to repeal the Magnitsky Act. He even sent an, his emissary to Trump Tower in June of 2016 to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner to ask them if Donald Trump was elected that year to repeal the Magnitsky Act. So he understood where this was all heading. He hated it. He hates it because... Vladimir Putin is the richest man in the world. He's stolen just an unbelievable amount of money. And he keeps all that money with oligarchs in the West. And he knew that that money would eventually be frozen as it just has been. How do you sense that this sanction regime that's taking place right now will affect Putin personally? Well, the way I see it affecting Putin personally is that the oligarchs, so Putin doesn't hold any money in his own name. Because if he did, if there's a document, a bank statement or a property register, someone could wave that around and say, look, this guy's a crook. He's not a, he's not a patriot, he's a crook. 
or or they could threaten Putin to say, um, if you don't do this and that for me, I'm going to wave this piece of paper around and blackmail him. So he has to hold it. He, he can't hold it in his own name. He's got to find people he trusts to hold it. And so who does he trust? He trusts a number of these oligarchs. And the oligarchs are really good for holding money because they're incredibly wealthy to begin with. And so it doesn't look odd that he's got all this money or they have all this money. And so when you sanction an oligarch, you're freezing Putin's money. And that's why it's so effective. Certainly if Putin didn't anticipate this pushback, the oligarchs didn't anticipate it. You know many of them. Talk about what you see as their reaction to what's playing out now and what they're going to do about it. Well, their reaction is is panic. They're on all-day conference calls with very expensive lawyers in, in, in New York and London, desperately coming up with strategies and, and ruses and, and um, ways of, of trying to avoid this terrible impending doom. But there's not much they can do. The, the size of these people's assets are, is so large, they can't just move them around from place to place. And so they're now stuck. These people are in, in bad shape. And, uh, and as a result, Putin's stuck. And Putin's in bad shape. There's also this sudden spotlight that is on all of these oligarchs, including a website that went up tracking their jet travels. Talk about that. <laughs> well, um, all of a sudden, everybody understands that, that oligarchs are part of the problem, part, part of what has to be sanctioned. And um, everybody wants to track their yachts and their jets and their properties. And I've been getting called. My phone's ringing off the hook from government officials all over the world saying, you know, Bill, you've been an oligarch hunter. How do we hunt them? And uh, it's, uh, they're, they're all going to come up a, learn, a pretty steep learning curve, but they're going to figure out how to hunt these oligarchs, and they're going to hunt them. How many are we talking about, roughly? Well, um, when, when we were going into this crisis, I, I was saying to everybody, they should they should sanction if Putin crosses the border. They should they should uh, freeze the assets of the top 50 oligarchs. I think at this point they should make the list longer, like 120. I mean we, we've just been collecting our own list here, and and there's easily 120 Kremlin insider, oligarch, businessman, billionaire type characters whose assets should be frozen. To what extent can they put pressure on Putin at this point, and what form can that pressure take? Well, I think this is one of the big misconceptions of Russian politics and, and the Russian situation. Nobody can put pressure on Putin. He's not democratically elected by any standard. And the oligarchs are all basically uh, serving at his pleasure. In other words, at any moment, he can, he can strip them of their assets, strip them of their freedom, and strip them of their life. And so they're all just sitting there hoping and praying that they don't, that they can just hold on to whatever they can hold, whatever they think is theirs and not get imprisoned or killed. And so it, the, the issue is not that they're going to rise against them. The issue is that we're going directly after Vladimir Putin by freezing their assets. And it really is a punch in the face to Vladimir Putin to do this. To the extent, though, that they are holding Putin's money, it seems that it would give them some degree of leverage, particularly since so much of that money is outside of Russia. Well, it doesn't really, because Putin can issue an Interpol arrest warrant, bring them back to Russia, and throw them in prison. You, you, you know, the, being an oligarch is like the Hotel California. You can check out any time <laughs> you like. You, you can never leave. You know, it's, there's, no, there's, there's no way that you can say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, thank you, I quit. 
doesn't work that way. Of course, Interpol is talking about disconnecting from Russia, a subject you know well and was, was part of uh, what you wrote about in Red Notice. Yeah, so, the, so after the Magnitsky Act was passed, the Russians really got mad. They got mad at the United States for passing the Magnitsky Act, and they got mad at me for being the person who made it all happen. And so in terms of their anger towards me, they issued an Interpol red notice for me to have me arrested and brought back to Russia. Um, I was able to get that overturned. But since then, they've issued seven more. So they've issued a total of eight Interpol red notices. I was arrested in Madrid, Spain in 2018 and also in Geneva Airport and uh, on these Interpol notices. And so, <clears throat> I mean, just imagine this. The International Police Organization is working with a criminal regime to, to chase after their enemies, to arrest them, to send them back to their death. <laughs> and so uh, and, and I'm just amazed that Russia could be a member of this organization and Interpol could put up with this. And I'm so happy that today the British Foreign Secretary Priti Patel has uh, launched an initiative to kick Russia out of Interpol. What resources does the Russian Central Bank have to be able to deal with the pressure that it's under right now? Well, this is part of the beauty of these sanctions that the EU and the US and other Japan and Britain have all basically frozen the money of the central bank. So they can't use their sterling and their dollars and their yen and their euros. And so all they really have is their gold reserves that are not um, sort of frozen. And, and this puts them in a particularly horrible and precarious position because uh, at the same time as all this is happening, everybody wants to convert their rubles into hard currency. And, and they're not allowed to because there's no hard currency to convert it into. And so it's going to become a it's going to be like the Iron Curtain, the Soviet Union, where you have rubles, but they're of no value anywhere, uh, anywhere outside the country. As you know, there's been a lot of talk about what role crypto could play in all of this. Do, do you see it playing a role? And if so, how? Well, I think Russia is the largest um, sort of holder of cryptocurrencies. Uh, I, I read that somewhere. And it would, if that's the case, and I can't confirm it is. It would make sense because if you want to take more than ten thousand dollars out of a bank, you've got to write them like a long essay about what you need the money for. It's all you know that the, the anti-money laundering regulations are so tough, tough and tight. But you can take ten million dollars of cryptocurrency and put it on a disk and or a, a flash drive and hand it to someone and and take it around the world with you and nobody's going to know. And so this is you know the ideal way of defying sanctions. And I would imagine that this crisis will force a lot of governments to um, uh, accelerate the regulation of cryptocurrencies so it can't be like this criminal currency. How long do you think that the Russian banking system and these oligarchs can sustain these sanctions? Very short period of time, because if they have all these companies, these big Russian companies have huge dollar debts. And what's going to happen is they will default. And then what? Then it'll be an interesting story about what happens after the default. If you own bonds of a Russian company, as a Westerner, are they going to even allow you to exercise your bankruptcy rights? And my my guess, my my strong prediction is no. It's going to be a, a real uh, interesting expropriation exercise against Westerners. What about dollar assets that these companies have? Um, I would imagine that that if you're a lender to a Russian company and they have assets offshore, and they've defaulted, and they've not given you your rights, you probably make an application to the court in the country where they have the assets and try to seize them. Talk about where all of this is playing out. A lot of it seems to be focused 
in London where you are, and, and that seems to be sort of a central point of, of where a lot of this is taking place. Talk about that. Well, so for, for a long time, London was to Russia as Hong Kong was to China. Uh, all the Russians came to London. They came to London not just physically, they came to London financially. Why do they come here? They came here because we have property rights and rule of law in London, and they came here because the police never asked any questions about dirty money. It was the ideal situation. Your money is safe both from the Russian, your Russian competitors or other people wanting to steal it from you, and your money is safe from law enforcement. And as a result, over a 20-year period, the amount of money that flowed from Russia to London was in the tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. And so you have every self-respecting crook, government official and oligarch and combination of those people has you know, enormous villas in the center of London. In fact, so much so that, that the average British person couldn't afford to live in London because they drove up the price of property so high. There's been a lot of talk from the UK foreign secretary in the past couple of days about further sanctions on these oligarchs and seizures from these oligarchs in London. Talk about that. Well, um, I think Britain is particularly embarrassed by the by this whole scenario of all this oligarch money coming in here. That there was a <clears throat> communication written about, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, or perhaps with one of the British papers. Uh, a couple of weeks ago about how the U U.S. government was so worried about Britain uh, being the weak link if if sanctions needed to be imposed. And that's that's a very embarrassing and kind of humiliating um, impression for, that the, the, for the British to have of themselves. And so uh, they I think they've reacted very strongly in the government here to, to come up with a, uh, uh, you know, uh, robust um, response to that, which is to go after the oligarchs to seize their properties and so on. Now, all the headlines, and, and we had the foreign secretary running around all the TV shows and radio stations over the weekend saying this, I've been living here for 30 years and I've heard a lot of really robust announcements which end up with nothing. And so I'm hoping that this is different. I think that everybody understands that that we can't just let it go because if we do, you know, we're facing World War III if, if, if we don't, you know, show Putin the real cost right now. How complex is it seizing these assets from these oligarchs around the world, the yachts, the townhouses, the jets, etc.? No, it's going to be extremely complex. The oligarchs um, who have these have the best lawyers, the smartest lawyers. They've created the most complex structures, asset protection schemes specifically to deal with these types of issues. And so they're all going to wave their hands in the air and say, not mine. <laughs> I've been living there for 15 years, but not mine, and uh, and it's going to be a very hard thing to prove because they've they've gone through these exercises. But um, we can't let that stop us. Besides being a full employment act for very expensive lawyers, will these sanctions have an impact then? Given what you're saying, of course, it's it's totally devastating. You get put on the sanctions list, even if the government can't get your property from you. Nobody will ever do business with you again. No bank will allow you to transact. Any money that you have in a bank account will be frozen. And you're pretty much, you become a non-person in the world of finance. It's like a, you'll be a financial leper. And um, it's terrible for anybody on these sanctions lists. How does all of this play out in your view? Well, my, my feeling is a very bad feeling. I've been fighting with Putin myself 
through because of the Magnitsky Act for a decade. And what I've seen him do is always escalate, no matter what. He never has, he has no capacity for compromise, no capacity to back down, and will escalate even if it harms his own interests. He's a conflict for conflict's sake type of person. And so he's been humiliated now. He's been humiliated by the Ukrainian military, and he's been humiliated by the West financially. And he, he doesn't do him humiliation well. And so I, I, I've, I'm, I fear dramatically for the Ukrainian people because um, after this embarrassment of having all of his tanks bombed out along different roads and cars running out of trucks running out of gas and planes being shot out of the sky, um, I, I fear that he's going to do something really horrible to try to demoralize the Ukrainians. And, um, and I, I, I dread that and I know what he's like. And I, I just, I can't imagine a scenario where he doesn't do that. If there is an off ramp to any of this for him, for this whole conflict, where do you think that off ramp is? If there is one? I don't think there is. I think there's no off ramp. Um, I just don't see, cause he doesn't back down. He doesn't compromise. And what he's asked for is so far beyond anything that anyone is willing to give him. We're not ready to like give him the sovereignty of Ukraine and Ukrainians are certainly not letting, let, willing to let him get the sovereignty of Ukraine. And so it's, it's really a, I, I just don't see, I just, you know, I think the, there's no off ramp. The only thing that we could do is just uh, a full on containment strategy where he just sees that, you know, he, you know, if he, if he pushes, he just encounters steel. That's how we have to position ourselves with this guy. And you've seen a lot of, written over the past couple of days about the danger that Putin might be in in Russia itself. Is any of that true? And if so, how so? He's not in any danger. I mean, he's always been in danger of, of, you know, if you're sitting in that seat, you get to be the richest person in the world. Everybody wants to sit in that seat. He doesn't want anyone else to have that seat. He wants to keep it for himself until the end of his natural life. And he's a very paranoid little man. And so he will constantly look for traitors, for betrayers, for anybody who's even thinking about it. And um, I think that what, one thing we might expect in the near future is for him to start to um, kill some of his, his uh, the people around him uh, to make a point to the other people around him. And his clear unhappiness with the Russian military, how is that going to play out? Um, I think it's going to play out um, badly in the sense that um, he's going to then find somebody else with a more radical solution to this thing. And that radical solution is a big escalation and a heartbreaking uh, outcome for some group of Ukrainians. Do you have a sense of how the world economy will be impacted by these sanctions? Well, I mean, with the obvious things, we, the oil price is going to be up, which is going to create more inflation in a time when we can barely afford the inflation. And it's oil, high oil, oil prices are particularly bad for the developing world. And so you may see revolutions and, and overthrowing of governments in places that we weren't even paying attention to because of the oil price. Um, I can imagine that that um, there's going to be a, an energy crisis in Europe because he's one of the obvious things for, that he, he can do is uh, cut off the gas to to Germany and Austria and Italy. Um, I can imagine that um, all of us are going to end up um, paying higher taxes because we're all going to have to invest more money in defense as life goes on. Uh, and, and generally, we're all going to be sitting here wondering when the next shoe is going to drop, and that makes it harder to make long-term plans, which is very unfortunate. 
Bill Browder, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Your new book, Freezing Order, comes out in June, I think. We will look forward to that as well. I thank you so much for joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.